Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today we're taking it back to the late 80s, to the time of the early games. The stick across where you hit balls <laughs> or joust. The two that we know. <laughs> it wasn't quite as long ago as when we used to just pick up random stuff in the street and hit it with sticks but it might as well have been for video gaming reasons right that's what i'm saying we are aging some of the audience and some of the other audience has no idea what we're talking about <laughs> it wasn't quite 1800 stick ball but it might as well have been we're talking today of course about the floppy disc special prince of persia yeah so we're talking about a game that was developed by one man as they say and was this passion project that actually involved just so much intricate coding and problem solving and just things that we take for granted today in game development or in game development tools or like if a game's not crisp enough today, we're like, that's not 4K ready. Get that out of here. And what's so great about the Prince of Persia series, not only is it an amazing gaming franchise, but it also spawned a film franchise Jake Gyllenhaal who doesn't love him what impresses me the most and what impressed me the most about this game when I played it for the first time was the animation style it's so important yeah. it's so critical to how great this game is and I feel like it does a great job at influencing games in the future. It absolutely does and we're going to dive into that animation style what it took how many weeks it took just to make what we see as simple animations of a character and what Jordan had to do with it. So Derek, take it away. Prince of Persia is a fantasy cinematic platformer game developed by Jordan Mechner and published by Broderbund Software. Originally being released in the U.S. on October 3rd, 1989, this game takes place in medieval Persia with the evil Jafar seizing the throne and imprisoning the sultan's daughter, the princess. You play as an imprisoned orphan boy in a race against time to save the princess who has been given the ultimatum to marry Jafar within an hour or die. The game was critically acclaimed and is often listed among one of the greatest video games of all time, but not an immediate commercial success as it was released at the tail end of Apple II's relevance. It sold many copies as it was ported to a wide range of platforms, and it is believed to have been the first cinematic platformer that inspired many games in the subgenre, such as Another World. Its success led to the release of two sequels, Prince of Persia 2, The Shadow and the Flame, 
and Prince of Persia 3D, as well as two reboots of the series, first in 2003 with Prince of Persia The Sands of Time, which led to three sequels of its own, and then again in 2008 with the identically titled Prince of Persia. And as Derek said, you know, this led to just so many sequels, and especially with Mechner just really honing in on this and just taking all these ideas he had and just these storyboarding uh, majesty, I would say, you know, seen in his journal, which we'll talk about, of what he really wanted to accomplish in this game, what it took to do it. And honestly, where we're seeing a lot of those same strategies done today. So let's jump over to Jordan. Prince of Persia creator Jordan Mechner grew up drawing cartoons, writing stories, all with dreams of creating animated movies, inspired by, you know, Disney animations. His focus, however, shifted when he was first introduced to the old computer. Yeehaw! <laughs> the yeehaw of the computer west. His first hands-on experience with a computer was during his sophomore year in high school. One of his teachers had a PDP-11 in the classroom. You know, we all know that. But no student was allowed to read the manual due to the teacher's fear of students hacking into it and changing grades or addresses, you know, because it was just basically a DOS machine where you could get in and just <laughs> access basically directories. Yeah, things were not as complex back then. So it, it really was as simple as just kind of logging in and saying, hey, you know, this, uh, this D teach, I'm thinking that's a B, baby. Yeah, B, baby for B. And so this made using the computer more or less of like a guessing game. So he still could use it. It was just more so they couldn't read the manual to use it correctly. <laughs> I love it. I love the I love like the teacher trying it, but him being like, I'll figure it out anyway. <laughs> so Mechner was introduced to the Apple II, which was the computer that he used to program all of this on, and was enthralled with it. After saving money and from selling Mad Magazine-inspired comics and drawing caricatures at local fairs, he was able to purchase one for himself. It allowed him to play video games at home instead of taking rolls of quarters down to the local arcade. You know, his thing was basically saying, like, I could play these games as much as I want and take as much time as I want on them versus, you know, someone behind you poking on the shoulder being like, hey, man, you've been at this game for like an hour. I want to jump on this arcade machine. All the other ones are taken. You know, he, he actually had the time to do that. This is when the functionality of cargo pants started to die. <laughs> yes. Jordan Mechner started the down, downward trend of cargo he was, pants. He was like, I don't need these baggy pants for quarters. I don't need the Rolls anymore. I got the Rolls Royce of computer <laughs> gaming right here, baby. So not only that, the Apple II allowed Mechner to create his own games. Mechner would then start teaching himself how to program, mainly through articles from the magazines Creative Computing and Soft Talk, because for you kids at the time, there really was not internet <laughs> this early on. You know, this is the early, early stages of programming, of computers, so it was more so through chats with friends who were interested in it, what the computing magazines would release in terms of coding, you know, how to create certain programs, anything like that. And so the more he learned, the more he would also discuss coding with his friends and trading tips along the way. So yeah, it's like, oh, I, I did learn how to write like that. What's, what can you exchange with me so we can both learn? <laughs> At first, Mechner was just creating copies of existing arcade games, only having three lives and trying to obtain the highest goal. When Mechner created Asteroids clone Death Bounce, he sent it to Broderbund Software 
though they were impressed with the programming, they told him that the climate was changing from these kinds of games and told him to check out Shoplifter. This game not only told the story, but it had an ending, and it inspired him to work on something different. And, you know, this is too, uh, this was basically a double-edged sword for him because Atari actually came out and was like, hey, you know that clone you made? Uh, could just stop? Because <laughs> I guess... Not necessarily game piracy, but game code piracy was kind of rampant at this point of creating clones or creating basically the same game. Because these are complicated codes at the time, but not in reality. So you can kind of come up with this over a weekend and build it again. So they were trying to crack down on a lot of that. Exactly. It was revolutionary in terms of video gaming, but it wasn't necessarily revolutionary or particularly difficult to to learn Mm -hmm. to make these games. So definitely an issue. Now a freshman at Yale, Mechner started work on his breakout game, Karateka. Released in 1984, the story in this game was rather simple. Rescue the kidnapped princess from the evil warlord by winning karate battle after karate battle with the warriors who are guarding the fortress until the player ultimately defeats the warlord. It's I'm trying to think of what games it's reminiscent of, but it, it was basically a side-scroller, left to right, but you keep going to the right. And keep like fighting and like doing these karate battles as you went along this pathway to eventually hitting that warlord. So kind of kind of a one screen game, if you want to call it that. But you basically kept scrolling and doing these really cool fights. It's actually a pretty intuitive game for it. And it is pretty fun. I don't know too many games that I don't. And in fact, I don't actually know one that would have been released before 1984. But Ninja Gaiden's kind of similar to that on the original NES. Mm-hmm. And a lot of side-scrolling games have the same kind of concept from that point forward. So pretty uh, influential, I would say. It, it was. And the thing was, developing this ambitious game was met with some challenges. The Apple II was limited in its music capabilities, memory, resolution. It could only display four colors. Additionally, Mechner felt that the animations for the main character felt too stiff rigid and didn't have the lifelike quality that he saw in his head like what he wanted to you know it's always tough when like in your brain you see this piece of art and like me i cannot draw and i try and like put that to paper I'm like this is not what i yeah. wanted my brain done lied so to combat this he decided to use rotoscoping for the animations which was a popular technique that involved tracing film to get more fluid animation styles such as the human characters in snow white so basically you film humans doing things, you take that film after it's developed, and you trace on it, and you use those tracings to create the characters or the animations that you want. That's why if you go back and look at Snow White, the characters are very fluid. It looks like humans moving, and it's basically just tracings of actual humans. And it was a very, very popular animation style within the Disney realm, and Mm -hmm. it's definitely what influenced him to make this game the way that he did. Yeah, because they were some of the... Now, they weren't the first to rotoscope, but they were the first to really pioneer using rotoscoping for big animation. And so Disney really like, you know, led that charge and let, allowed other people to see that and, and take on those ideas. So to do this, to do this rotoscoping and this idea, Mechner filmed his karate teacher performing the moves presented in the game, tracing the frames he needed, then creating them on screen pixel by pixel. So kind of filling those little dots in for every different frame of animation for it. And some had 12, some had 15, some had 10. Obviously, the more frames you have, the smoother the animation will be. It's very similar in gaming if you have refresh rates, which is basically the frames that'll show per 
you know, second that it's refreshing to get those frames going. You have 120 is much smoother, 60 is a little choppier, 30 is choppier. So the more you have, the more it looks real. This was the game that finally sold Broderbund on Mech. The company was in the process of expanding their portfolio, and Karateka was the perfect game to do so. And so they offered to publish the game for him. And the thing with it is this game got so popular <laughs> and just kind of like spread like wildfire. I love the story. Oh yeah, Mr. John Carmack Ooh. of Doom fame actually pirated the game when it first came out. And at a GDC like 30 years later, they both finally, like Mechner and John Carmack finally ran into each other. And John Carmack is like, man, hey, I just want to talk. I actually, for Karateka, I actually pirated it back then. I didn't have the money and I was learning to do stuff. So he actually slips him, you know, a, a cool, crisp 40, probably Ooh. two 20s. 20s his way. And it's like, we even, we square now? <laughs> I kind of want to do that. I kind of want to go because, hey, listen, in the younger years of no money, I will admit, under no legal pretense, I did pirate a few you few things here and there. Just a few. But, Alex was like king of the pirates. I called Alex Blackbeard back in the day. <laughs> listen, listen, we had to take care of some stuff. We were, we were children. We were of the infantile <laughs> money we earning range. We were children, matey. <laughs> exactly. Just, just a pirate's life for me children. We're like a Kermit <laughs> with a beard. That's basically what it was. It was essentially <laughs> like I was living the life of Peter Pan and Alex was Captain Hook. That's what it felt like. And then, not unlike Peter Pan, I fully engulfed you in the betrayal and darkness of pirates. <laughs> Whatever, baby. I was a saint. Karateka quickly became the best-selling game at the time upon its release. With this, Mechner didn't have to go out and attempt to find a job after graduating from Yale University. He was torn between becoming a screenwriter or developing another game. He spent a year shortly after the start of Prince of Persia trying to get a screenplay made into a movie, which never happened. During this year, however, the game The Castles of Dr. Creep would catch his attention, and the more he played it, the more he wanted to make something inspired by it. A game with Rube Goldberg-style puzzles, along with fluid animation of Karateka. Eventually, Mecca returned to video game development, with Broderbund backing him, eager to see what he would do next, though they were disappointed to find out he was not going to be creating a Karateka 2. Yeah, for him, it was just more of that challenge of Karateka was interesting, but I wanted something a bit more, a bit more of that meatiness, especially with those like Rube Goldberg-style puzzles, of traversal, and Karateka was already known as that kind of beat-em-up side-scroller, so it would just be an odd difference to kind of make that a platformer now and fight karate battles differently. So he, he had some ideas to build upon that. So Mechner started concepting his next game. His inspiration for the game came from the first 10 minutes of Indiana Jones' Raiders of the Lost Ark. He wanted to keep platforming as one of the main elements in the game, and he also wanted to make a platformer that seemed realistic. For example, if the player falls from a certain height, It'll kill him. Yeah, so two things on this. So the, the first 10 minutes of the Indiana Jones film is when he's going through that temple and like things are crashing down, spears are shooting out. So he wanted that very templistic, that's now a word, <laughs> this very templistic feel. We are revolutionizing Tem here on Finish we're, the We're changing fight. it up, baby. That's what we do. <laughs> so he wanted that feel of traps and, you know, of something that actually had, you know, a result to it or, or something that had a reaction. 
And so that was his big thing. And to take upon that, you know, he wanted to revolutionize what games did because most games, if you fall from a height in those olden days, back in the 1980s oh. and earlier than that. Oh my God. Everything was <laughs> and black was, and white back then. It was yeah. all black and white. You just ate bread and water. <laughs> but around that time, like the you know, 70s and the 80s, it was those games like if you fell, it was just like a doot, 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 like a slow fall and you wouldn't, nothing would really occur. Or if you did, you just kind of like, meow, 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 lost a life or something. Yeah. This, he wanted more of that visceral reaction of like, it's a human. I want it to be kind of realistic. If you fall into a spike pit or if you fall like three stories, you're going to get hurt. There were certainly punishments for the early NES games that mm-hmm. happened when you fell from certain heights. And sometimes they weren't as realistic. I think this game does a good job of a realistic falling standpoint. Yes. On top of the realistic physics in the game, Mechner wanted the animation to be as smooth as possible and seem almost lifelike, essentially capturing the excitement from the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Luckily, technology had improved since he started work on Karateka. The overall process for this smooth animation, however, was extremely tedious. Mm-hmm. And we'll break that down because it's a it's a process of analog to digital, analog to digital, analog to digital, and this vicious cycle to do it. So for Karateka, as we had said, Mechner filmed his karate teacher on a Super 8 camera. So that's that Steven Spielberg film. You know, they went back and basically just, you know, had that film and shot. Anyway, he filmed this entire thing at a Super 8 motel. Is that yes, what you're that's, saying? that's all of it. Yeah. So all those puns and terrible jokes, just wrap that up to assume that's pretty funny. <laughs> And uh, please tweet at me as you laugh. <laughs> but he needed to upgrade for Prince of Persia. You know, Super 8 was a thinner film. You needed something a bit beefier that could capture more. So fresh out of college, he used his first credit card to purchase a VHS camera and deck. This allowed a, quote, clear freeze frame without the snow so that he could take a picture of the screen. Mechner filmed his brother David running and jumping, sliding, grabbing, you know, all of these different animations in the Reader's Digest parking lot to create the first step in animating the characters of Prince of Persia. After filming, Mechner knew he could not afford the payments for the camera and that VHS deck, so basically, to view it, you had to plug the camera in and record to this whole big deck to get the recordings going. Sure. And he knew he couldn't record it because it cost more than the Apple II he was programming on. So he had a limited window, and he's like, oh, I can't really afford it, so I'll just package it back up and return it to the store. Listen, that's some baller moves back in the day, because, listen, Pirate Alex here as well? I thought a couple things or two. I mean, you got to do some things every once in a while to make your dreams come true, right? And sometimes that means ripping off the big box retailers. It is, and, and this tenacity is what does. Like, I love reading about this type of stuff, where it's like, we can't afford this. But we have, like, the talent and the raw, like, grit to want to do it. We're just going to make it happen. I 100% did this. I 100% did this with uh, audio software that I got. Mm -hmm. Everyone does it. I I understand. And and most time, it works for what you need it for. And so I will will admit, he does feel guilty about it, but... uh, Probably just like a like a teaspoon of it, not a full tablespoon of guilt, just like a teaspoon of it, maybe even a half tea, as some call it, an HT of, of, of guilt. But there's some there. Even just that little bit. That's all you need. Yeah, just a ping. While the game was in the early stages of development, Broderbun agreed to publish the game, but Mackner was tired of working out of his parents' basement. 
After some negotiating, he was able to convince them to let him work out of their San Rafael, California office. Working with Broderbun changed the way he saw video game development. He was amazed to see developers working on two Apple II computers, using one for testing and one for updates, and using hard drives. At the time, Mechner had never heard of a hard drive. So you gotta give him benefit of the doubt. You know, computers were pretty new with a lot of this stuff. So it wasn't like he just, what's a hard drive? What am I doing with it? It's because most of the time you threw stuff onto floppies. You had this external storage for it. It was more comparable to the switch from hard drives to SSDs. Now that he was settled in his new office a year after he filmed his brother, he was ready to get back to work on the game. The next step was getting the frames he needed from the videos onto the computer. Mechner would play the video on a TV specifically with a VHS player with freeze frame and took 35mm pictures of the frames he wanted to use for the game. After developing the photos, he used a Sharpie and Whiteout to create the overall silhouette of the character, and he then put the photos through a Xerox machine, giving him all the images on one sheet, allowing him to see the animation with the high contrast between the black and white. Next, he put the sheet on an animation stand and captured the images with a video camera that he could directly import into the Apple II using a special digitizer called the DS65 Digisector, which priced at $349.95 and could let Apple see the world, quote. So, so yeah, so to sum this up, ooh, it's a lot. So he basically had that video of his brother took that and put it onto the old big screen, the old 22-inch, <laughs> and, and then put a 35-millimeter SLR camera, so like a kind of a higher-end film camera at the time, took screenshots frame by frame, so basically took a picture of that TV, then took that film and whited it out and sharpied like just to make some, you know, hi- like highlighted areas, basically, of, of the high contrast. Xeroxed it, so put it on one, digitized it, and it's just, it's so much for so little, but it's so important because there wasn't like an animation tool. You couldn't go into Cinema 4D or any other builder and create these 3D models that just walked, talked, jumped to have this. You had to hand program it all. And it's and to make it fluid, not to just make it look like a Mario jump that's like three frames of like Mario kind of jump, up jump. This had to be fluid of 15 frames, 10 frames to get it looking like an actual character, actual human was doing it. It's insane. That's a hashtag detailed photography walkthrough right there. That is right there. Hit me with the hashtag (laughs) DPW. So from there, he could recreate the images on his Apple II, cutting them out pixel by pixel, and then running those frames in sequence to create the animation. All this took weeks to achieve. And finally, on October 21st, 1986, Mechner wrote the first lines of code for Prince of Persia. It wasn't long before Mechner needed to record his brother once more, this time hanging and landing on his feet. Once again, Mechner went through his whole rotoscope process to capture these movements. Again, it's just insane. And if you haven't, please just even check out just a quick vid of Prince of Persia to see those animations and to see like how good they look and how many people really pulled from those ideas in animation and brought it to their own. After all the animations were brought to life, Mechner faced a problem. The Apple II's memory limitations were only 48 kilobytes, less than a standard text email of today. Each frame of animation was a series of bytes, 
eating up at that computer's memory. This 48 kilobyte had to store images, backgrounds, animations, logic, sound effects, and music. The animations alone filled up most of the computer's memory. So, you know, again, we see this in a lot of the early developers, even like up to the PlayStation 1. The limitations of a console or computer, when you're trying to push stuff to the limits and create things, you gotta get creative. 48 kilobytes, are you my Mac? <laughs> are, you, are you Derek's Mac that we record this on? Because that's what it feels like every time we do this. <laughs> uh, so two years into development in 1988, most of the game was finished. Everyone who saw the game marveled at the animation and art style and just the fluidity of it. However, most players testers did not think the game was that fun to play. It was just kind of a running, jumping sim. And they're like, it's, it's, yeah, it's like technically cool, but it just wasn't something that kept me interested. Mechner was left to figure out how to improve upon the game and make it fun and exciting. Another problem Mechner faced was the dated Apple II. Once the top games platform, the Apple II was reaching its end of life. You know, you started to have home consoles start to come out. You had all these other updates. Even like MS-DOS was advancing. He knew that this game, if it came out, was going to be great and fun and successful, but no one would ever play it. He needed to finish this game ASAP. And for a time, he was questioning the initial vision of his game. And he decided, listen, it, it looks good, it feels good to me, but we got to make it appeal to everyone. So he started to change his vision up a bit. So yeah, what was cool about this, man, the amount of time obviously was put into the animations, the art style. It's sort of surprising to me that at this point in the development that they didn't think that it was fun to play because mm-hmm. everything that I've seen from the gameplay and have experienced within the gameplay is this was like a really, I don't know, interesting platformer from this point. Yeah, and kind of new age in a way. But remember back, you know, this far, there weren't that many traps yet. There were pitfalls. But it was mostly like a platformer with no stakes. Like your stakes were falling, sure. But there wasn't much else in substance-wise if you got good at the jumping. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So at this point, the story is simple. Rescue the kidnapped princess from the Grand Vizier. Mechner would draw inspiration for the story from A Thousand and One Nights and the Thief of Baghdad. The simple story was a reflection of the simple gameplay, a platforming game with no combat. At the time, Mechner was sharing a workspace with a few other developers, and every time developer Tommy Pierce saw Prince of Persia, she would tell Mechner, combat, combat, combat. She felt the game would not be fun without it. Mechner would tell her time and time again that there was simply no more room left on the computer to implement combat or to animate the enemy, and that it's a puzzle-solving game, not a violent one. He would add more dangerous elements like torches on the wall and jaw traps that added suspense to the game. Pierce was still convinced that combat was needed in the game, it would be a selling point. And it did. But at the time, you know, he's like, it's not like a fighting game. You know, it's, I'm trying to get away from Karateka. It's more of this like exploring and time-based sequence. And like, oh, you got to do it in that 60 minutes. And he's like, I don't know if combat would be fun. So Mechner was left wondering what to do next in the game. The solution was easier than he thought. 
Pierce had brought up how in Karateka the enemy silhouettes are the same as the hero. From this, he created the Shadow Man, using the same character model as the hero of Prince of Persia, but changing the colors to resemble a more ghost-like character, all of which only took five minutes. Yeah, this was a thing where like it clicked for them. You know, he's like, I don't have space to create another character on this. They're like, what if you just use the same model like you did? So it was basically encoding terms, you know, instead of a zero, it's a one, and that flips the white to black. So you had the opposite of you, and you could still save that memory using the same character, just changing like a couple lines of code. Taking that ocarina of time element. Mm-hmm, exactly. Or maybe the reverse. This character will now be an aggressor toward the player, stealing potions, shutting gates before the players entered them, and hindering progress throughout the levels. What little memory was left in the game allowed for sword combat, not only against the Shadow Man, but the Grand Vizier who had captured the princess. So yeah, so was able to add it. And he said, you know, those movies and those things like Raiders of the Lost Ark and all these other th- like things I'm based this on, they still had some combat in it. It wasn't just a platformer. They still had to have a little bit of fighting in it. So it's like, why not add it in? Even after all of the progress, Some days Mechner would adore the game. Other days he would despise it. Some days he simply did not want to work on the game anymore. It did not help that at any given point during the three years of development, he thought he was only a couple months away from being finished. I mean, it's tough. Like any endeavor like this is like, oh, we're almost there. Like a couple more months. And it's like, but there's no combat. Uh, Okay, I was going to add a bunch more time, but only a couple more months. So I, I totally understand that. So Mechner was able to find some additional memory after creating Shadow Man that he could use for implementing guards into the game to further enhance the combat elements. Creating new animations now had a new list of setbacks. Mechner's brother, who we had used before, lived 3,000 miles away, so he could not film him again. Plus, his brother was no good at sword fighting. Mechner decided to film himself and his office mate Robert Cook fencing with a sword. He rented dozens of pirate movies in order to replicate the sword fighting and figure it out and and get them swashbuckling. But in the end, the result was really just a lost cause after they reviewed the footage of him and Robert. You know, it was just kind of, it looks nothing like what we want to do. It looks like two dudes who've never sword fought ever, pointing swords and like, you know, pretending. Mechner then turned to one of his favorite films, the 1938 film Robin Hood. Mechner was able to find a six-second clip in the movie where Robin Hood and the main villain were perfectly in profile, fighting one another. Mechner once again went through all the steps that he had previously used to capture these animations and put them into the game. So basically rotoscoping each frame out, going back and forth, back and forth to get these animations in there. And with these new animations, with the combat, with these new characters, it felt complete. And, you know, he found this little chunk of memory that was just kind of a residual that was just kind of saved for a couple other things. So he just kind of like eked it in. You know, tried as best he could to get those little bites to be able to use it. I mean, this stuff sounds so silly and insignificant, but this guy is basically creating mocap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very early, especially gaming version of mocap, and it worked. And mocap, I mean, as we know right now, uh, what's a game that you can name that really doesn't utilize the same strategy? Like we know now that mocap creates the most realistic, humanistic animations mm-hmm. in gaming. 
I mean, this is huge. For him to go back and find a film, 1938 Robin Hood, and be able to take that and use these animations, and I encourage anyone who hasn't seen these animations in the game to go and just look at gameplay footage. Everything looks fantastically realistic. Yes. I mean, this methodology works great, and that's why it still exists today. And that's exactly it. And so around the end of development, Mechner radically changed the design of levels, pacing, balance, and exploration. Though this might seem like a rather daunting task, Mechner was able to easily make all these changes due to a level editor he had created initially for the game, inspired by the level editor in Load Runner. Mechner also dialed the game back, cutting it down from 50 levels to 12 and giving it the same difficulty as Karateka. So giving it, like we had talked about earlier, like that kind of spice of an older game. It's less levels, but it's more challenging. You still got to figure stuff out. You still are on that 60-minute clock. So it's definitely cool that he does that because to have a game like this that's different but still have some sort of perspective in terms of difficulty, I think that helps gamers out a lot in Mm -hmm. terms of transitioning into new titles. So when this game was originally released in 1989, it was already dated because it was an Apple II exclusive title. And at that point, Apple II was a commercially dated platform. Even though it was receiving positive reviews, it simply was not selling as well as Mechner had hoped, with only 7,000 copies sold. Broderbun licensed the rights to the game to companies such as Konami, Sega, Nintendo Bandai, Domark, and Hudson Soft, and did not really think much else of it. The PC port of the game didn't sell well either, and most retail stores didn't want to carry a port of a game that was deemed a failure. Yeah, all these early efforts were just tough. And we'll learn the PC port actually sold exponentially better when we start to see it on other consoles, because it actually inspired Prince of Persia 2 and kind of gave Mechner that push to do it. But in these early days, it seemed like it was kind of all lost. It wasn't until the game was ported to consoles and other gaming platforms in the early 90s that success would start to show. The Mac port of the game was also delayed, but by the time it was released, there was a Mac market ready for it. Broderbun's accountants would start to come into the office with strange looks on their faces, holding royalty checks for upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and no one at the company expected this. I mean, I wouldn't either. It's like 7,000 copies sold. Yeah, just put the licensing rights out there. Just have them, whatever. They can do whatever they want with it. Hopefully we break even. Hopefully we get a little ka-ching. But uh, they're basically the sultans of this game at this point, just taking in money after money. I would not mind some confused people figuring out, you know, who do I give this $100,000 check to? Yeah. Walking into my office. Would not mind it in the least. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. 
When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So some of these ports are faithful to the original Apple II version of the game, but most came with updated graphics. Some notable changes that were made to these ports can be found in the Super Nintendo port, which contains eight additional levels, redrawn graphics, and an increased time limit. The Sega CD port of the game animated the cutscenes and included voice acting. The source code for the game was stored on a 3.5-inch floppy disk. Years after the release of the game, Mechner lost a good amount of his floppy disks. Even though he spent 10 years searching for them, he assumed they were lost. Gone. Vamos. Goodbye. Goodbye. But luckily for Mechner, his father, Dr. Francis Mechner, found the discs while cleaning out his closet. And now Mechner wanted to transfer the data on those fragile discs to modern computers. He was able to work with DiskFerret, an Apple II collector known as Tony Diaz, and digital historian Jason Scott to make this happen. They were able to use a custom hardware in order to pull magnetic readings from the disc. The original print to purchase source code, along with many other unfinished games Mechner had created, were finally saved. Mechner eventually posted the 6,502 lines of assembly source code online for free. And Mechner also released a digital document that he put together in 1989 to help those who wanted to work on porting the game. So yeah, he basically released all the source code, all the ideas, everything that you had to do to make your own. Isn't this one of anyone's worst nightmares? It's like the thing that you want, the thing you love the most, the thing you want to keep. You leave at your parents' house. Now they've done some sort of housekeeping. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is definitely gone forever. Oh, no, I just moved that into my closet because I turned your childhood bedroom into a gym. Yep. <laughs> They're not going to need all these old games they played as a kid. Just throw them in the trash. They're not going to need any of these games. Yeah, absolutely. Just throw them away. These floppy disks. Nah, these things. No one uses <laughs> these anymore. Yep. It's all over. So there was a limited amount of marketing for the game. Most of the marketing of Prince of Persia relied heavily on word of mouth and listings in Apple II magazines. By the time the game was released, most gaming magazines were removing their Apple II listings since the platform was dated. And one reason the game didn't initially sell well was due to the packaging of the box itself. In 1992, Broderbund repackaged the PC version in a, quote, candy box, a trapezoidal box that gave it a look of a modern game, but it was really just a dated 1989 game. So, yeah, so they tried to, you know, give it a better window dressing, give it a better look, that feel of those, like, Sega Genesis games in that case that would, like, pop open, a jewel case, candy box, plenty of different names for it, but that first kind of hard plastic case that came out that made it feel tactile and not just a box. And those candy boxes, as we call them, were so cool when they happened. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that, obviously, it, it's disappeared. It, it's gone away. There's no reason to have it. If you have a game, it's now in its own candy box mm-hmm. where you have to bring it up to the the desk and kind of get it unlocked from that point. But to have it within a mercantile situation where it was going to be at least recognized as a video game, I feel like that's what's important, right? To have the Switch games by the Switch games, the PlayStation by the PlayStation, the Xbox by the Xbox. These weren't the issues faced at the time. 
it was video games by the video games. Yeah. So let's jump over to gameplay. What is this kind of about? It's very simpler, but how do you play it? One unique aspect of the game is that the player only has those 60 minutes we talked about to complete the game. True to the amount of time the princess has to make her decision. During the cinematics, the hourglass holds an accurate amount of time of sand, depending on how much time is left in the allotted hour. So as you turn in with the princess, it actually updates it. Thanks to the animations that were advanced at the time, running, jumping, and climbing were actually all made possible. The player is able to use these to interact with the level itself, such as pulling down slabs or jumping from ledge to ledge, as well as fighting those enemies. The fighting style called Ungard mode included multiple animations in itself too, including blocking, putting the sword back into its scarab, moving forward, moving backwards, and striking with the sword. Similar to fencing, combinations of these moves are necessary to beat the game, so a la that Robin Hood scene. An animation system was also assigned to the player based on their injuries. The first level consisted of light injuries, costing only one bullet of life. These include a two-story fall, a guard hitting you in guard mode, or a broken slab falling on you. The other levels consisted of severe injuries that resulted in death. These include three-story falls, being hit by a guard outside of on-guard mode, and falling on spikes. Throughout the different levels, the player can pick up many different objects. During the first level, a sword is picked up and is used for the rest of the game. The rest of the objects are all potions and grant specific traits to the player. These include healing potions, evil potions, life extension potions, reversal potions, and landing buffer potions. There are also numerous traps and puzzles found throughout the levels to either aid or help the player from progressing. These include gate switches, loose slabs, pits, spikes, and saw cutters, and they can all be found in nearly every level of the game. So the story begins during a medieval time with the Sultan of Persia, who has been called away to lead a war in a foreign land. Sensing the opportunity to seize the throne for himself, the evil vizier Jafar imprisons the Sultan's daughter, the princess. She is then given only one hour to make a choice, marry Jafar or die. The princess' only hope is an imprisoned adventurer who has been put away for just loving the princess. The game starts out with the player in a dungeon having to make their way out through guards, gates, and spikes. Through many corridors and platforms comes a fight with a skeleton, which leads to a mirror. From there, as you run through the mirror, a shadow version of yourself will crawl out the opposite side of the mirror as you jump through it. Running away is the only option from this, but it's into more pitfall traps and stronger guards. Cutscenes before every level shows the princess waiting patiently in her room, looking at that hourglass or out the window as the time ticks down. More traps and puzzles lead to the cinematic where the princess sends her pet mouse away somewhere. The player presses forward through more gates and guards until reaching a locked gate. From here, the mouse actually helps open the gate and the player moves forward once again. By this time, the player is out of the dungeons and back into the palace. A maze of puzzles, guards, and more traps leads to a tower full of dead ends. Climbing and jumping forward brings the player back into contact with the shadow player where hurting it will deal the same amount of damage back to you. The only way to solve this is through lowering your sword and naturally merging into one with Shadow Player. This was a huge twist 
spoiler, <laughs> that was really cool in the game because the shadow player, the shadow man, had been hindering you this whole time, as Derek had said, taking potions away from you, closing gates as soon as you reach them, and it seems like trying to hurt you. So in this sword battle, as you guys strike each other, if you ever hit Shadow Man, it actually hurts you. And it's only when you put that sword back in the scarab does Shadow Man also put the sword away and you both run towards each other and reunite and all of your life that you've lost thus far is actually brought back. And it like energizes you. So it's like this lost piece of yourself is now back together. Really, really cool story idea. And it's not only a cool story idea, but it's something that you have to figure out relatively quickly because the 60-minute time frame that exists for the princess actually exists for you as well. So not only do you have to figure out, hey, um, hurting this guy is hurting me, I might die. You have to figure it out within a relatively short time frame. Yeah, because, I mean, I... I Looking back at some of the clips and seeing people who got stuck on that, it can take a chunk of time. Even five minutes is a lot. I mean, that's a lot in 60 minutes to go through. And if you're wasting on that fight trying to figure out what to do, is there a secret? Did I miss a potion? Is there a trap I'm supposed to drop on them? It's interesting because you've been doing combat this far and all the combat's been fight, 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 kill, kill, kill. And now it's back to like Mechner's do no harm thing. And I thought that was just a really cool inclusion into it. So to wrap the story up, you jump over a large pit that leads you into the big fight with Jafar, who can easily be beaten using all the strategies it took to limit the guards throughout the previous levels. The player makes it through the next door and meets the princess in the cinematic, and it reads, The tyrant Jafar lies dead, his power shattered. Throughout the land, the people of Persia hailed their princess, and the brave youth who saved her from the forces of darkness. No longer a stranger, he shall from this day forth be known as Prince of Persia. Dang. That's nice. End scene. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool tie-up. I mean, it's, it's the save the princess kind of trope, but done in you know, a slightly different way or a Mechner way. Uh, a rags to riches story. You start out as a prisoner. You end up being the Prince of Persia. It's, it's the same story that Disney steals for Aladdin. <laughs> you know, it's the same kind of idea with it. And... Right, exactly. It's, uh, it's hard to say uh, who stole what, stole what, stole something from something else. Stealing, theft, pirating. Yeah, pirating, as, as good old R's do. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's as Disney's, you know, Disney's well known for taking old folklore, old folk tales and redoing them. Very similar to kind of the Thief of Baghdad and very similar to what, what uh, you know, uh, Mesner has done. And, yeah. and that's yeah. kind of how they did it. So Aladdin's that same kind of story. Mechner saw Disney at a place and he was like, hey, you know what? I actually feel bad. Let me give you $40. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a little bit of cut material in this game. There were going to be five castles. With 10 levels each, that didn't happen. And there was also going to be a spring-loaded wall that would have had spikes on it. That didn't happen. The spikes were something you could fall on throughout the gameplay, not a spring-loaded wall. And I'm, I'm glad that they did that. It was hard with the time frame. This was definitely a game of memory, which were a lot of games from this time period. Yes. So it made sense. It was... You figure out one puzzle, remember it. You probably run out of time before you get to the end. But by the time that you realize all the different puzzles, 
you've figured the game out. And so you can fly through the game a little bit faster. So these things make sense. Yep. The Prince of Persia original soundtrack was written by Dr. Francis Mechner, the father of Jordan Mechner. Dr. Mechner's work was focused around psychology, specifically learning processes, behavioral pharmacology, and analysis of individual operant responses, resurgent, and creating formal symbolic language for codifying behavioral contingencies. I'm exhausted. He's done a lot. Listen, this is the doctor who be doctoring a lot lot. in that brain. Outside of this, Dr. Mechner has also been an avid artist and musician, giving numerous piano recitals at places such as Westchester Conservatory of Music and the WNYC radio station. Wanting to be a part of his son's projects, Dr. Mechner originally wrote the music for Jordan's 1984 game, Karateka, and Dr. Mechner would return to write the music for Prince of Persia, this time focusing on using the lead motif method of composing. Because of where the game story takes place, Dr. Mechner experimented using different modes and scales that were commonplace in the Middle East during the Middle Age. At first, Dr. Mechner would sit at his Steinway piano and improvise until he came up with the theme. Once the theme was figured out, he hand-copied the music onto staff paper. The only problem at this point, however, is that the Apple II speakers did not have the capabilities of playing two notes at the same time. To solve this, Jordan would go to his father's house and listen to Dr. Mechner play the written-down music on the piano. If Jordan liked it, he would have Dr. Mechner play back the theme slowly so that Jordan could program the pitch note by note into the software using a Sound Blaster Pro synthesizer. It was here that the two decided over trial and error what the music could sound like based on whether or not it could be played through the computer's speakers. The Prince of Persia original soundtrack was never officially released, but can be found on most music streaming platforms. It contains a total of 22 tracks by father and son. Dr. Mechner would also help orchestrate the original soundtrack for each new version of the game's release. And so, obviously, a man of many, many talents. Now, this was a game that was released on many, many platforms. We had the Apple II, MS-DOS. It was released on NES and the Super Nintendo. Also on the Game Gear, Mac, Sega CD, Sega Genesis, Game Boy Color, iOS, Android, Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and ultimately the Nintendo 3DS. There were some unofficial ports, Alex. Oh, there were. Tell us what those are. Oh, let me tell you. If you had a if you had a graphing calculator in high school, as as we once did, you probably had a Texas Instrument, a TI eighty nine or a TI ninety two that she ported to the calculator. It was also basically D made. So, you know, D-Make is where you take like a modern game and take it back. But this was an old game brought to modern, taken back onto the Commodore 64, onto the Roku, and onto the Atari XE. So overall, we skipped a couple, but there was over 20 official ports and over, it was like 13 to 15 unofficial. A lot of those being in foreign places like Russia and China that didn't necessarily get official ports for their systems or whatever their, you know, tech tech was at the time. 
they pretty much put a port out for those. So I was too poor to have the really smart, nice calculators in high school. But now I am rich enough to have a Roku. Rags <laughs> to riches story. Let's get for, Prince of Persia going himself. on. <laughs> for Derek himself. He's doing it. He's making it, guys. Awesome. So even though Prince of Persia's success was a slow burn, the game was still receiving praise for the Apple II version alone. Critics and journalists would emphasize the game's fluid animations, as would I. Mm-hmm. In 1991, PC format named Prince of Persia one of the 50 best computer games ever, highlighting its unbelievably good animation. And in 1996, Computer Gaming World named Prince of Persia the 84th best game ever, with the editors calling it, quote, an acrobatic platformer with amazingly fluid action. Additionally, Charles Arday of Computer Gaming World stated the game was comparable to a Star Wars film in terms of action and adventure. Most of the ports for the game were also met for praise with the average rating of the game around 9 out of 10. Reviewing the Genesis version, GamePro praised the extremely fluid animation of the player character and commented that the controls are difficult to master but nonetheless very effective. Comparing it to the Super Nintendo Electronic System version, they summarized that the Genesis version has better graphics and that the SNES has better music. Otherwise, the two are identical in almost every way. The game sold over 2 million copies, most of which were console versions. Since then, the series itself has sold over 20 million copies. And now Mechner does feel that his approach to developing Prince of Persia was inefficient, since a team of three could have gotten the work done in a fraction of the time. Some ideas that Mechner had for the game took months to implement, when it should have only been weeks. The game took four to five times longer to create compared to Apple II games at the time. So it's kind of his hindsight thing of like, I could have done it better, I should have had a team with it, or I should have just known more. But again, it's kind of his first thing, I guess second major soiree into it, or second major success with it, but he wanted to just do so much more. And it's a learning experience. It's kind of what a lot of it was. So like, yeah, your hindsight's 2020, but at the time, you don't really know. You have to kind of bumble through it and figure it out for yourself. And on April 30th, 2020, Mechner did an AMA on Reddit where he stated that he would be releasing his journals from the development of the game as a book. And users could ask any questions that they may have about the game to him. And he admits he did so about producing the journal as a book because he was immensely pressured by his friends and family just in time for the game's 30th anniversary. And if you haven't checked it out, it's really amazing. It's all his original sketches, notes, high, high times and low times in this game development. So if you're a game, if you're a game dev and just want like an inner working, an inner man, enigma, as SpongeBob might say, um, check this out because that'll give you an idea of like what it takes to start to do these things and the passion, the ideas, the buildup for stuff like that. Now, Prince of Persia influenced cinematic platformers such as Another World and Flashback, as well as action-adventure games such as Tomb Raider, which use a similar control scheme. A few DOS games were created using exactly the same game mechanics of the DOS version of Prince of Persia. Mach Chevette created Cruel World in 1993, and Capstone Software created Zorro in 95 using those same ideas. 
Reverse engineering efforts by fans of the original game have resulted in detailed documentation of the file formats of the MS-DOS version. Various level editors have been created that can be used to modify the level files of the game. With these editors and other software, over 60 mods have been created. Prince of Persia set a new precedent for how animation should be done for modern games going forward. Really unseen at the time, Mechner used this tech that he borrowed from Disney and used it to create an exciting platform game that almost didn't see the critical acclaim it deserved. Really? I mean, if, if we have, if we're talking about, you know, working with doing ports or any of that stuff, I mean, the, the effort, the time, the passion that goes into it, and to see, you know, your creation, your amazing amount of work and effort possibly just go down the drain because it's just wrong place, wrong time. That's rough. So I, I am glad to see that the ports to these home consoles, these new computers worked and worked well and created such an established IP. Most people know it by name. You hear that name and you know it. You know it going forward, whether it's a modern title of it, the movie, or just, you know, if you were born before dinosaurs, you know it in 1989. So, so it's, it's all those things that are really, really cool that have got built into it. And it's a game that stands on its own. So again, that was our coverage of Prince of Persia. As always, Derek, why did we choose it? What do you think? Prince of Persia, man, this was something you guys covered before I was even on this podcast as a part of an influence for Assassin's Creed. Still a massive, massive IP that exists today. And I am still, to this day, blown away by the visuals on the original Prince of Persia. I think they look extremely fluid. I think that the development process is particularly interesting. I loved watching Disney movies as a kid. And so when we did this research and said, hey, uh, Disney movies were a big, big influence on Prince of Persia, it totally made sense to me right away. As soon as we started looking into Snow White, you go and you look at the animation style and you can see right away the influence on, on Prince of Persia in particular. I don't know about you if you paid attention to special features in Disney films, DVDs, VHS. Sometimes in the VHS versions of those uh, films, stuff would just start to play versus like DVD where you'd have to really look for it. But I remember Bambi in particular explaining what was essentially the same process that was used for Prince of Persia. and. I just, I've always found it extremely fascinating. I love the new style. Don't get me wrong. I love, you know, movies, the Pixar style of movies. I know it's become more modern in that sense, but there's something to be said for the level of effort that really went into films around this time. And not only that, but games in this time. And I think Prince of Persia just did a great animation job. It doesn't even matter to me so much if you like the gameplay, per se. It's that this game did so well at animating just human physical animations. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is really cool about this one. Because like I said, 
if you want to go back and play games in this particular time, they don't always look that good. This one looks good to me. This one makes sense. And that's what I want for video games. I want realism. I want experience. And Prince of Persia covers that. For me, this game is probably like a 6 out of 10. Even with all the animations, because they don't always make sense, because they don't always flow well, it makes the game hard. Sure. There's having realism, and there's having realism as a functionality. And the functionality, unfortunately, is not there in Prince of Persia. Originally, we've gotten a lot better. Obviously, like I said, it's transitioned even going into Ubisoft, even going into the Assassin's Creed games. The functionality has now become more prominent. But at the beginning, even with these extremely realistic animations, the ultimate end result was sometimes frustrating. Falling on a spike, you jump a little bit too early, too late, when you don't really necessarily feel like you should have. Agreed on some of those points, especially the controls. It's a finesse, like you said. It's one of those things where, in a lot of modern games, it's much more forgiving. You get the idea of it. Whereas in this, it's like, when does the button press hit the timer for the animation to start to hit that? How far does the animation go? Totally understandable. Terrible scoring rules, but understandable points to argue there. Um, again, numbers, fake. Get this out of here. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, to just reiterate what Derek said, it was so ahead of its time in terms of one man creating this, by the way, just just one man working on this with you know the help of some devs jumping in on some things. But amazing to see like the efforts and the 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 hoops jump through to create the animations, to to get all this rolling, to get the sound design, to work with his dad with it. Super awesome. So if I had to get a rating, I would give it a doctor status with thirteen different things I study because that's way too many things to study for psychology. Add in that. Super awesome karate game. Who doesn't love Karate Islands? Karate Islands should exist everywhere. Um, I think in combat form. Amazing stuff. Love to see it. Um, subtract out uh, shadows, which are just the bad versions of yourself. So we all want to, sh- you know, we want to shed our shadow, as, as some might say. Cleanse it. And they do that with a mirror. So add in a mirror, because those are cool. Um, but then divide it by not having um, Abu in it. It obviously makes Aladdin, um, and then uh, score that out of probably Arabian Nights out of ten, out of six. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker, with assistance by Evan Barr. The intro and outro music for this episode was written, composed, recorded by Evan Barr. <laughs> Again, we want to thank those who support us, especially monetarily, and a couple other things. That is through our Patreon. Patreon's got some really cool stuff, especially coming up this weekend. If you listen to this live-ish, if you want to call it that, but the day this comes out, we are doing a Patreon D&D. So at the $5 tier and up, you are invited to our D&D game. We'll have all the videos recorded. So if you want to do any catch-ups, you want to have some fun with it, we're going to be streaming it, plus having the VODs available for patrons to do that. Create your own characters, which will eventually lead us to some other campaigns. And we'll see how it goes. So if you're interested... Check it out. It's the $5 tier and above. We'll get you into the game. Helps us fund by the books. Helps us just take the time to create the campaign. I'll be DMing. I will be dungeon mastering for y'all. So there's plenty of other patron rewards to check out as well. So let's thank those people today. We have Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Richard Scanlon, Mick Chief, Climbing Spork, 
1898, William Crow, and Mr. Toot. So thank you all so much for the support. And I really want to see you guys there in the D&D. I think it's going to be absurd. I'm going to make it as insane as possible. Even <laughs> if you don't join it as a patron, please check out that stream. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. If you decide not to do that, I'd still love to see you on our other platforms. We have an Instagram. We have a Twitter. We're there on Discord. Come hang out. We're having a good time. We're talking Halo Infinite. We're talking other podcast stuff. Please come talking, hang out. Talking it all, baby. It's all free. And as Derek has said, we're going to be streaming that over at twitch.tv slash sourman70, S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. Derek will also be doing some streaming stuff at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247, thebakerman247, all one word with that. We'll get you over on our Twitches. As well, check out our Etsy shop. Link is below. I believe it's etsy.com slash finish the fight store. I'm probably wrong. Trust the link, not my face, <laughs> but I think that's what it is. If not, I will edit it back in on that note. If you haven't yet, you can catch us on your favorite podcast listening platform. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on everything right now. If you haven't yet, please give us a review. We'd really appreciate it. We love hearing from you guys, and it helps us out a lot. And with that, as I had said, that is our coverage of the 1989 Prince of Persia game. A fantastic little story with it. Such a cool development cycle. And we're looking for more of those. If you have any other games that have an interesting development cycle or a bad one or a crazy one, let us know on our socials, Discord, DMs, whatever you got for us. Let us know. And with that, I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Eric Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.